Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Today's guest is Professor Gary Martin, the CEO of AIMWA. In this role, he's responsible for building leadership, management, and workplace capability. Prior to this role, he worked in senior leadership roles at Murdoch University, including as Deputy Vice-Chancellor. His career started as a primary school teacher, and he attributes a lot of the lessons he learned in that in guiding how he communicates and lead. When COVID hit, like many CEOs, he had to make many difficult decisions and describes the thought process he went through for doing that. Gary is a very prolific thought leader, and you can find his articles in many opinion editorials around Australia and overseas. He describes the key elements of a great article, which is gold for anyone who wants to be a thought leader. His idea of a great Saturday is writing an article that he is happy with and that he can discuss with others and share. He's a big contributor and influencer on LinkedIn and has over 66,000 followers. He's a fan in the importance of regular conversations with his team and describes how he has designed the office to help achieve that. He strongly believes that every CEO must make it really safe for others to make contributions and present ideas. Gary is a gifted communicator and I know there's lots of lessons to take away around communicating, influencing and keeping your finger on the workplace pulse. Enjoy. Professor Gary Martin, a real pleasure to welcome you to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Graham. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on, especially after some of the things we've discussed over the years and interacted with on LinkedIn. I just saw, Gary, that we actually have 1,495 mutual connections. <laughs> That's quite a bit. So Gary, we're now going for 2,000, are we? <laughs> I don't know. So, Gary, what does care in the workplace mean for you? Yeah, look, I think it's really twofold. There's caring for others in the workplace, but I think something that we really need to pay much more attention to is something called self-care. So, you know, we do need to look out for other people. There's no question of that. If you're a CEO, you need to look out for people's workload, how their working lives intersect perhaps with their personal lives. But we also need to promote self-care. So every time you go on an aircraft, which has not been too often these days, you'll be told that you need to look after yourself in an emergency before you can help others. And that holds true in the workplace. You can't really care for others in the workplace unless you start to take care of yourself. And so that's why I like to say it's that two-dimensional. It's not only you've got to care for others. You've got to actually promote self-care, encourage people to look after themselves. You know, one of the things that I like to do without, you know, going into all of the detail is I like to look at where in our busy calendar during the year we can give people extra days leave 
And that's one of the things that try and do over Christmas, try and give people a few extra days leave along the way, try to make a long weekend, a super long weekend on top of their, their leave requirements. And that, you know, goes a long way, I think, in terms of helping people to start to care for themselves. Yeah, that's a great example of just topping up those holidays and making them a bit more substantial. That's a great initiative. You're in the business education sector, you know, being with AIMWA, and that area has been pretty disrupted, hasn't it, with the whole COVID lockdown, much fewer live performances, although WA's had a bit of a better time than the other states, but has there been much changing to how you've operated over the last 18 months? Look, we've had periods of doing virtual type of work, and that's been very good. But the interesting thing is when it's been all clear to have people face-to-face, people have come in, becoming back to face-to-face and they're flocking back to face-to-face mm. to the point that they almost crave that human contact and interaction with others in a real space rather than virtually. Mm. So we've had periods where it's been virtual, but by and large, WA has been very fortunate. We've had big chunks of time where we can have people in our training rooms face-to-face and people have thoroughly enjoyed that. Take that away from people and they miss it dearly. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, we've all had to, I guess, particularly the Eastern states have really had to come to terms with Zoom and WebEx and (laughs) Meet and all, all the various different platforms. What do you think really makes the live experience stand out? Why do people crave that, do you think? Well, in a training course, for example, what happens is you have more one-on-one conversations, whereas when you're on a call, a Zoom call, for example, with, say, 10 other people, you don't have a lot of that one-on-one interaction. Mm -hmm. And in a training course, people might speak to the person sitting next to them. They might, during a break, talk to a group of people. And they tend to get to know people a little bit more intimately and vice versa. Whereas I think there's less of that personal interaction on a virtual call, unless, of course, it's a very small group. But the larger you you make those groups, the less interaction. And I think people have actually missed not only the whole group and having a sense of being part of a big group, but that one-on-one stuff that might happen with five or ten people in the course of a training program. And it's also the experiences that people would share when they're with one or two people, which they might not share when they're with a larger group. And it's quite hard to read the room, isn't it, in Zoom? You've got little squares, but you don't really have micro expressions. You can't see as much the body language and that sort of thing. Like my wife is a researcher and she has a large team, but 120 researchers. And, you know, she just talks. If you can have a live session, you get so much more out of it. You can keep the momentum going, you know, after that sort of thing. But there's something about the live that really can't be replaced. I think when you're facilitating any group, it is really difficult virtually to actually read the signs that people are a bit fatigued, that people want to jump in and say something. You know, you almost have to go out of your way to make space for people to speak in a virtual setting, whereas it is a lot easier to read in a face-to-face training program. And as I said, people have been voting with their feet because we still offer people a virtual opportunity or a face-to-face opportunity and very few people pick up the virtual opportunity and so many more people pick up the face-to-face. Not that the virtual is not useful because, you know, in a state like Western Australia where there's a lot of remote areas, it's not necessarily easy to come to the city or to travel to the city, travel to regional areas to train people. So it does break down some of that isolation. 
Yeah. Gary, you're a very prolific writer of opinion pieces, certainly in Western Australia, but also around Australia as well. How do you observe the topics that you think need to be written about? (laughs) It's really interesting because I find that I was just thinking about it just the other day about how in the role that I've got where every day through, you know, the buildings that we have here, I bump into people and they share with me because of the sort of organisation that we are, what they're looking at, what they're hoping to learn, what their challenges are. So, so I sort of have a gauge through actually speaking to real people as they walk through the building and so on. Some of them also contact me through LinkedIn, send me messages. Some of them contact me via LinkedIn and then come in and have a coffee with me to talk about the challenge, concern. So if someone raised a concern with me, I might take that and then test it out with someone else and someone else and someone else just to get a different sense of the same topic. And, you know, that really does help you pull together some thoughts to put together your own piece with your own thoughts on a particular topic. So I'm very fortunate that people will share with me their experiences on a daily basis in the job that I do. Yeah, yeah. And you started off in academia as an academic and then moved into leadership there and then transitioned to your role now. And you've been there for nine years as CEO of AIMWA. How did being an academic help you in your current role as CEO of a a training organisation? Well, I don't think it was so much as being an academic. It was more about university administration because I was an academic who went into administration. So I spent about 10 years in university admin before I came into my current role. And of course, those sorts of management roles are great experience to be CEO for any organisation where it's a corporate entity or a not-for-profit. But if I take you back one step before that, I was a teacher educator and a university administrator. I was actually a primary school teacher. And it's actually the primary school teacher part of me that helps me enormously in my role day to day. It's about communicating with people, making contact with them. It's about being super organised so that you can make space to speak to people. It's all of those things that I think I was taught when I was training to be a teacher, the communication, the interpersonal skills, the organisation, the preparation, all of those things have Mm -hmm. positioned me well to do my job that I do now. It's bizarre. (laughs) <laughs> but I guess there's, there is something about the simplicity of language as well. You know, it's quite quite well known that Donald Trump, for example, communicates at a, at a fourth grade level, you know, quite extraordinary. And yet, you know, he really is able to put a message together that resonates or blows up, you know, one way or the other. But yeah. there is something, isn't there? And many, I think, politicians often overcomplicate things. I think that it's all about unpacking stuff in a way that people can digest. And that is even the case for the opinion pieces that I write. I don't write them so that they can't be consumed. I I try and write them, unpack an issue. That means that you don't go into any issues in particular depth in a regular opinion piece, but you really highlight what some of the issues are. And the reason I do that is to get other people to start to have conversations around a particular topic and to delve into the detail. 
rather than be my detail. Why I write, write opinion pieces, just as an example of written communication, is just to get people talking about issues. I don't have all the answers to those challenges or opportunities or whatever I write about, but it does get people talking. And that's really what I want, getting people talking about workplace issues that impact not only on their day-to-day life in the workplace, but you know, many people now, their working lives are entwined with their personal lives. So mm-hmm. I, I like people to talk about those things and I try and get people to do just that. So you've written a number of opinion pieces in the last 18 months. What's been one or two of them that's really resonated and sort of taken off? It's interesting. Sometimes the pieces on social media that I write about people spending too much time online and try to put some of those things in perspective in in a COVID sense because, you know, digital type devices were a saviour for many people in lockdown who weren't going out in terms of workplace. We know the term work-life balance, right? Which I think there's challenges with that particular term anyway, but I've called it tech-life balance instead. And, you know, that type of topic around trying to balance your use of technology with balancing the rest of your life, you know, how much non-screen time and so on, those sort of topics are really resonating with people at the moment. So anything around, I think, social media is really a topic that people engage with readily. And I've written a number of different topics around that. But interestingly, also topics around mental health and needing to be front of mind for leaders at all levels of an organisation, not just the CEO, also seem to get a lot of traction, create a lot of discussion and so on as well. So I've been trying to gear the sorts of things that I write about to some of the issues faced by people during the pandemic. And and certainly mental health is one of those issues, but also their use of social media and technology are also big points of engagement. Mm. There's been a fair bit of coverage recently about, you know, the mental health issue. And, you know, for example, last week, Lifeline had their busiest Mm. calls ever in the whole history, just last week sort of thing. Yep. What do you think needs to happen in workplaces to help address that? Yeah, I think we need to to make resilience and mental health, if you like, in the workplace a priority because it's obviously a pandemic issue, but it's always been there before the pandemic. I think people are starting to feel more comfortable talking about mental ill health I think we need to do it because it's the right thing to do, but it also tunes managers into things that they might say that will will actually trigger anxiety and stress. So during the pandemic, a lot of people kept on talking about we need to do more with less, right? That's common. You still hear people say that all the time. We've got to do more with less. But that's a dangerous concept to start floating about because not only does it actually create anxiety, but it actually results probably in less productivity because people are torn so many ways. So, you know, part of actually focusing on people's resilience and their mental health is actually about prioritising in workplaces and letting people know what priorities are in terms of workflow rather than trying to shove more into already busy people, if that makes sense. Yeah, yep. You mentioned at the start the importance of self-care. What do you do to fill up your own tank? What do you do to, you know, stay vital? 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because I can now read the signs of my own body in broad terms after, you know, it's only probably taken me 30 or 40 years to work (laughs) that out, but I can do that. And there's this thing that people talk about that goes hand in hand with mental health is is your body quotient. You've heard of emotional intelligence. Well, what about your body quotient? That is, you know, reading the signs that your body telling you that you're tired, that you need to rest, that you need to take a day off. A lot of people have those signs. They get fed those sorts of things all the time and they ignore them. What I've done in terms of my own self-care is actually learnt to monitor the signs of my body. If my body is telling me I'm tired, I'll switch off. I'll go home early. If I need to take a day off, I'll take a day off. That's my BQ. I can tell that I'm not operating at my peak performance. And the good thing about that is I can actually become more productive rather than less productive. Since I've learned to monitor what my body's telling me, I've become more productive than ever. I only wish I used to do that 20 years ago and say to myself, listen to what your body's saying because it can be a quick fix. It can be... Taking a day off on the weekend, even though you've got lots of things, and that yeah. can make you 10 times more productive during the week. Yeah, yeah. I really like that term, body quotient. And it also reminds me of the Yerk Dodson stress performance curve, which looks at stress and stress actually improves performance. But then it's a bell curve and then declines yes. very quickly. But the really telling thing I think in there is how close that focused and fatigued are, you know, focused is right up the top just on the left and fatigued is just on the right. So it's a very fine line, isn't it, between that focused and fatigued? Yeah, look, it is. And if you're prepared to stop and think about what your body's telling you sometimes, you'll, you'll, you'll know when you've reached that particular point. But the problem is in the workplace, if we keep pushing people, we don't read the signs, then people even might be reading their own body and what their body's telling them or what their mind's telling them. And then they get pushed on by someone says, you've got to get this done, you've got to get that, that done. Enjoy the weekend, but don't is what is what some bosses will say. You know, some leaders, supervisors say, enjoy the weekend. And I'm looking forward to receiving that on Monday morning or whatever so you can undo it. So we've got to be conscious of encouraging people to take some time out. I'm lucky because I guess I'm I'm the boss and I read the signs of my own body and I can I can say that. I've also, you know, learnt that if I've got a particularly hectic schedule where I get to work really early, if I've got something late that night as well, so that I might be going for 12 hours, then what I might do is work from home in the mornings, have a slower start and then ease into things because I've been working for 14 hours the day before. I can do all those things now. That's easy for you to do that, I guess, if you are in charge of something. But the other thing I do for self-care, though, is simply do something that I like doing that I get an enormous sense of satisfaction from. And the irony is for that is that's work-related. So when you talked about me writing opinion pieces and so on, I love doing that. So if I can set aside a Saturday to write something and achieve it, I have this glowing sense of satisfaction from doing some work. And that's why I think this whole concept of work-life balance is a flawed concept because it's more about work-life flow, two flow together into each other. You don't, you know, segment them so much and if you can get the concept of 
work-life flow, where things flow, where sometimes you may have to be more present in the work part of things and sometimes more present in your personal life than you're on, on, on a winner. Yeah. And you also highlight something else very interesting, and that is using your strengths. Mm. You, you might be familiar with the Gallup Strengths Finder that shows that you're much more engaged and you report a higher level of life satisfaction when you're using your strengths. And so when you talk about, you know, writing on Saturday, that's actually playing to your strengths and, and doing that and being able to deliver a great outcome. Yeah. I think for me, it's like, here's the problem. I want to try and write this out and I know I can do it. It's I have this go through a stage where I'm a little bit frustrated and trying to say what I want to say. And then at the end of it, if I can come out and be happy with something, which I normally can be after a day, I feel really good about that in myself because I've been able to get something out on paper. And it is a strength of, of mine to be able to do that. I've learned how to package things up like that. And now that strength helps me in just about everything I do in my job, in fact. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. What uh, process do you do when you actually write something? Is it just sort of jotting down a whole lot of ideas? When does it start to take shape? And when do you, when do, you do the headline? Is that at the end or when do you do the headline? <laughs> yeah, look, that's, a, that's an interesting one because I write the headlines, but then a newspaper might decide on the headline of their choice, basically, because you don't really have control around some of the editorial aspects. But I, I actually... The, the thing that I try and do is I try and capture the, the whole piece that I'm writing in one introductory sentence. Mm. And once I've got that introductory sentence, the very first sentence or two done, the rest will flow. Somewhere in between that, I might come back with a headline, if you like, although sometimes that comes at the end. And, and the, the other part about it is I draft it, I walk away for an hour, come back, I'll draft something again, and I'll draft it again. And again, when I walk away from something, I don't switch off from it. I'm still thinking about it, but that's a game. Sometimes I've found myself, myself out doing something different, you know, something really enjoyable elsewhere, but I've been wanting to get back, to get this back on paper, to get that sense of satisfaction. It's all part of my self-care. It's something that I'm, I immerse myself in and I can't get out of it, basically, and that's a good thing, I think. Absolutely. Have there been any particular authors of books or people you've followed that have had a big impact in terms of the way that you lead? You know, that's an interesting one because it's not so much authors. It's actually people that I see in action that really 
are the ones that I learn. So, you know, it might be someone who's presenting a course. It might be someone who's been a boss. Certainly the reading part of it, going to training courses, is all very important. But at the end of the day, I try and pull all that together and I look at individuals and there are different things that I've learned from individuals along the way. Like I've learned from, you know, some people how to diffuse a situation, for example, which is potentially a, a very difficult situation. So staying calm around a situation is something I've observed others do. Mm-hmm. I've learned how others can be very transparent with people and, and communicate the bad news as well as the good news in such a way that still supports people. You know, I've learned um, from people uh, about how to think about big picture type stuff and how you need to push through and how to bring people on board. I've learned all of these things not from one person or from reading a book. I've read some books. I've, I've been on training courses, which is good. And then I've looked for those sorts of concepts in different people. So, you know, I never will say I've seen that speaker who's given me lots and lots of thought about helped me shape my, my thinking around topics. It's more about I then try and take whatever I've seen and relate it to someone who's doing the job in real life, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So putting all that together, what do you think are the, the real foundations of high-performance teams, the best teams that you've worked with or on? What, what's been the common foundations, do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, for the first part, it is about managing the care of people that you work with. It's a no-brainer that if you can build this culture of care, encourage people to look after themselves as well as, you know, look after them so it's a dual thing, then high performance follows. Mm -hmm. If you are not pushing that you care about people and making sure that they're, they are okay, then the productivity just falls away. Mm-hmm. So I think for me it's more about care first to produce high performance. It's not trying to balance the two out and saying, you know, how do we balance this culture of care against a, a culture of productivity? It's, it's a no-brainer that if you care first of all, people will give you their best nine times out of 10. So mm. care produces that culture, um, which is a high-performance culture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's also psychological safety, making it safe for people to raise concerns or to make suggestions. How do you ensure that that happens in your organisation? Well, just to go back to the other type of question, first of all, just to finish off, because I, something I did want to say is if you don't engage people in what they're doing, you won't get productivity. You only engage them if you show that you really care about what your organisation does and their contribution to it. So that's that's the first thing. If there's that comfort zone, that leads into the safety thing that you're talking about yeah. too, Graham. So if you were to come into my office now, you would see my office is in the middle of a reception foyer area where people are wandering around. You would see that there's no one sitting outside the office door there that says you can or you can't go in. <laughs> so there's the blinds are open. Everyone can see me. They can see me talking to you. Because I'm talking to you, I've got my door closed, right? Normally that door's open. So if anybody wants to come and talk to me at any time, they just walk in. Now that's whether it's someone doing a training program, one of our contractors or staff. 
Most staff, as they walk into this building, they'll pop their head in and they'll say hello. Then they might say, um, by the way, I've been meaning to tell you. So I think that type of approach helps people just to walk through, to come and talk to you, you get to know them. The other way I could do it is I could go and walk around where people are working and so on. And that works, but it's a very public type of thing. Whereas if someone walks into my office, comes in and has a seat, has a chat to me, you know, they might tell me that they're worried about this. They might tell me that they're, they're this. So it's that open door policy, which I think I've got to the extreme. And you can only do that open door stuff and be available to people if you're organised. Mm. So the way I deal with that is I'm here 5.30 in the morning. That's what time I get to work. I get those things that I need done without interruption at 5.30 in the morning. So by the time people start to float in, when I float's probably not the word, some are racing in, some are floating, <laughs> they'll be coming in 7.30, 8 o'clock, and they might stop and chat along the way. So you have to make yourself available is my point. Yeah, I uh, interviewed Marcus Blackmore, you know, the icon of complementary medicines area, and he the whole time he worked at Blackmore's, he would always eat in the staff canteen. <laughs> he said he would find more out in those lunches than from any of his direct reports. <laughs> that, really, that, that you know, it was a way to really keep his finger on the pulse. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's really, you know, an important one. But I think for, I've tried lots of different things. As I said, you can do the management by walking around and interact with people and that helps you do that. But I actually like people walking in, feeling like they can just walk into my office at any time. Or if I bump into people, you know, outside of my office, I can have a chat to them. Then I like I like the spontaneity of some of that. Whereas I, if I go down to sit and have lunch with people, that's almost like I've planned it as well, even though I've got to eat too at times, but I love the spontaneity of people dropping in from time to time. Yeah. So looking at an imaginary situation where you could have a dinner party with anyone you like, alive or not here anymore, is there one or two people that you'd really love to catch up with if you had the opportunity? Look, there is. I'm not big on this sort of stuff because I like to speak to everyday people. I don't like famous people, you know, necessarily as the people that I would actually speak with. But the one person that really I don't know how she does it is the Queen. She has the sense of dignity, the sense of calmness, the sense of concern, a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, um, resilience, mental strength, courage. Do I need to go on on that list? And I'd love to be, I mean, I'm not, it's not going to happen, but I would love to have actually not invite the Queen to my house but be invited to her house. That would be fantastic because she's the one person that I really would like to see if it's completely real, if that makes <laughs> sense. Whereas, you know, anyone else, I know there's some people that have done some great things and I'd love to hear their stories and so on. But they're, they're, I'm not a royalist, but she does actually amaze me. <laughs> Someone her age breaks down everything you really know about people talk, you know, with ageism, people say tired, no energy, lacks this, lacks that, not this, not that. She just does it. I, I want to 
delve beyond the public appearances is, is my point. <laughs> and also LinkedIn career is pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. Over yeah. 70 years now with the same role and it's been unbelievable. And, and finding out what lessons she's learned in terms of a leader, what, what she learned. And I think that she's got to be one of the most interesting people to have that chat about. So that might sound a bit bizarre, particularly because I'm not a royalist. I don't, you know, I don't live and breathe the royal family. But every time I see the Queen, she impresses me. Yeah, yeah. An amazing person and length of life and, and just how many crises, you know, she's been through. And I think it's been the recent series on the, you know, the crown, which gives people a sense of, you know, the length of her career. You know, she's been through, you know, world wars and depression. So a lot of lessons come out of that. And how does she maintain such, you know, resilience when people are attacking her, you know, family or family members? How does she have that sense of, retain that sense of diplomacy or that diplomatic view of the world, how does she become so resilient when the whole world is watching her? There's some real lessons there for everyone, I'm sure. Well, I know you're right, absolutely. That's noted about that. Have you ever had to ask someone, are you okay in the last uh, year or so? Yes, I have. And typically the answer is not I'm not okay. People don't say no, I'm not. They they tend to say, oh, real, not really. No one ever says no, I'm not so much. Uh, or I haven't encountered that, but I've I've had the not really response, which opens the door for regular conversation. And I've had that both in the workplace and outside the workplace in recent times. People have not said no, I'm not. But they softened it a little bit with not really because what you say next in that situation will, I guess, determine whether someone's going to say what's really troubling them or whether they're just going to say, yeah, no, I'm fine. So it's an interesting one and I have had that. I, I think that I'm very conscious not to respond in a flimsy way because I hear so many people still respond with responses like, you know, ask the question, but then say something like, oh, we all feel down from time to time, or you'll snap out of it, or that's perfectly normal, those sorts of responses. So I cringe when I hear some of those responses, when I hear others asking it, and if people are okay, because that really means you don't really want to know. So I'm, I'm all ears when people say, sort of, or yeah, I think I'm okay, or something like that. You've got to read some of the cues that go with it. And then once you hear those cues, you can't expect people that they're going to then stop and tell you everything that's going on that they need support with. That might be a process that takes weeks by having regular discussions with people and providing them with advice, which might might be changing their workload. It might be seeking counselling support. It might be any number of things to, to, to support them. Yeah. And have you ever been asked, are you okay yourself when you really needed it? Look, I think people asked me regularly whether I'm okay, particularly last year when I was running a business that was going backwards in the middle of a pandemic and we had to lose some of our staff and all those sorts of things. People did ask me regularly. And it's an interesting thing when 
someone asks the CEO if they're okay because nobody wants to really hear that the CEO who's all about creating the right atmosphere and a caring atmosphere is not okay themselves. So I think I was lucky during that time to be able to answer, I'm fine, I'm good, because I had a very supportive board around me and they were providing the support, which regular staff, my colleagues might not have seen that. So I was lucky that I was able to say, yeah, look, I'm fine. We're doing the best we could as an organisation and I'm, I'm doing well as part of that. But it was nice that people did stop and ask the CEO if he happened to be okay. I would have been interested to see if people, what, 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 the, what would have happened if I said, no, I'm not okay, because um, <laughs> you know, then it becomes a, a bit more of a challenge when a CEO of an organisation is not okay. It's not that CEOs have actually said that they have some challenges to people before, but uh, I think I felt that right in the middle of the pandemic last year, when things were particularly bad in Western Australia, in particular at that time, and we've, you know, by national standards have had things pretty good, I, I was determined to look after myself during that time so I could continue to steer the ship. And yeah. so my self-care stuff really kicked in then as well. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute delight catching up, Gary. I really love the range of topics we've covered. And you've given some really wonderful insights about communication and uh, the way that you structure your articles, your opinion pieces. And I'm sure there's, there's certainly plenty for me to learn there. I'm sure others will as well. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? I guess you'd be just partway through your teaching degree. What advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? Yeah, that's easy, really easy, actually. It is about finding something that you enjoy, that you have a passion for, and following that. And doing what you enjoy is going to be good for your mental health, for your relationships, and your career. Mm. So when I say find something that you enjoy, it could be your work or it could be something outside of your work. But in any case, it's got to be something that, really gives you that sense of satisfaction. You can say, I've achieved something. That's what's really important. And that's what I call, you know, a passion. And that passion, whether it's something you do in your work or something outside, is going to make you enjoy your life, want to share it with other people and build relationships, I think. What a great tip and a great place to finish. Thanks so much, Gary. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us. 